tempered through fire, all survivors possess wisdom and grit. Reclaim power and revel in life. I'm Kelsey Harper. My pronouns are she, her. I'm a survivor and clinical psychologist, and this is The Initiated Survivor. Here, we discuss topics relevant to survivors, so please be mindful of your needs as some of these topics might be triggering. Hi, everyone. Today, I wanted to take a moment to talk a little bit about trauma and first just kind of get oriented on what trauma is, what the definition is, what does it mean when someone says that they have trauma, and how does this present specifically for most survivors? So the first thing is, is that when people think about trauma, they can think of a number of different things. And part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast and part of the reason why we think of so many different things when we think of the word trauma is because this word has been generalized to take on a number of different meanings and has become something that's actually rather unspecific or just kind of all-encompassing. And I'll go into how that has happened and why that's actually pretty problematic a little bit later in this episode. But for now, we're going to come back to defining what is trauma. I'm going to come from a psychological science-based discipline perspective, what, what we see in the science and the research in psychology. So I'll be moving from, from that kind of definition. The first thing is, is that in psychology, we don't actually use the word trauma the way that the general public seems to be using, which is just to kind of describe anything right now. When people use the word, for example, I have trauma, they can mean a number of specific things and it's rather unspecific in its nature. And so in psychology, we actually get more specific with this and we think of three different things. There's trauma exposure or traumatic exposure. There's a trauma response and ongoing trauma symptoms. And typically when someone says, I have trauma, they're usually referring to that last one of like, I have ongoing trauma symptoms or essentially, you know, an umbrella term for all three of those. I have experienced trauma, had a response and then also have symptoms. But sometimes people also use the words of like trauma happened or this was traumatizing for things that maybe aren't necessarily fitting this definition or they believe that they should have trauma symptoms when actually maybe they're having different symptoms in response to something that happened to them. So we're going to get very specific here. So trauma exposure is essentially exposure to a traumatic event. This is actually where we see A lot of people have disagreement about what constitutes traumatic exposure. A lot of people will jump in and try to tell each other what is what's an incident that is is meets the criteria being traumatic or traumatizing. And essentially what this ends up doing is setting up this conversation of what is, quote unquote, bad enough to constitute being traumatizing. And I think the first thing that I want to do with defining this is to take that that argument out of this because it's not like trauma is because something is really, really, really bad and things that are less bad are not trauma. It's that trauma is a very specific psychological injury that occurs and things can actually be just as bad but cause other kinds of responses that are not trauma. And that doesn't mean that they're less bad or that they're less valid, right? And I think that's the important thing is that 
When we argue about what is trauma, people are worried that we're invalidating people about their pain. And I think the important thing to keep in mind is that your pain is valid. All pain is valid. And all of your experiences are important to look at and to honor and to respect. And that just because pain may not equal trauma does not necessarily mean that pain is not legitimate or valid or worthy of actually getting support and help for. Pain does not have to be trauma in order to warrant getting some support and can be absolutely worthy of paying attention to and getting services and speaking out about. But so how our diagnostic manual, for example, defines traumatic exposure, and this is based on what our collective body of research defines as traumatic exposure, which is exposure to an actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence, and that this exposure occurs in a number of ways. So exposure just means like this has happened to you. And so this happened to you in a number of ways, either directly experiencing it, like you were actually the one that was threatened or harmed, witnessing in person the event as it actually happened to somebody else, learning that the traumatic event happened to a close family member or a close friend. And so this is when you hear about this having happened to somebody else, and you may also develop a response and some symptoms. This is very common, especially with parents or caregivers or siblings, that this can happen to when they learn about traumatic events that have happened to a family member or to a partner. But in this case, though, we're very specific that if we're talking about actual death, you know, that this isn't a just kind of normal end of life death, you know, that this is a death that happened as an accident or due to some sort of violence, Um, that end of life death or death at the end of a terminal or chronic illness is actually considered to be very normative and doesn't actually activate a trauma response for many people even though it may be very, very distressing, it actually launches into a grief pattern. And we can also have things like complicated grief, delayed grief, all of this kind of stuff that can happen, especially uh, when we are struggling with accepting the death of someone that we care about. Other types of exposure to trauma or traumatic exposure is experiencing repeated or extreme exposure to aversive details of a traumatic event This is in the instance of like first responders who are arriving on the scene of something terrible that had happened or EMTs who are treating the injuries of someone, emergency room doctors and nurses, social workers working with abuse cases, uh, therapists, psychologists working with their clients, that repeated exposure to traumatic events that happened to somebody else, particularly in moments where it's high intensity, high crisis, or there's a certain amount of psychological vulnerability, like there is in therapy sessions, this can actually activate a trauma response in the mind as well. The first thing that's important to also know is that exposure or what is considered to be exposure to a traumatic event does not apply to things that like watching it happen on TV, movies, or seeing pictures of it. Unless this exposure is like work related. So for example, that you're watching video security footage while you're doing an investigation, you know, you're a detective or something like that. We could say that watching repeated security videos is likely going to be that exposure. Where some of this does come under fire a little bit around the exposure is, for example, with 9-11, that we have a lot of people across the United States that reported having a trauma response 
to 9-11 that only viewed the um, the terrorist attack via the news. But likely what we're seeing there is that in addition to that it's a terrorist attack and everything that, that what that means and the meaning that it holds, that there was also severe and repeated exposure over and over and over and over again during that, that event and that incident that impacted the population. Again, these different terms are also going to be continuing to get edited and revised in the future as we continue to understand and explore trauma more in the research. So this is what we think of as what trauma exposure is. And again, this is something where a lot of people can argue that, you know, well, trauma is just in the eye of the beholder. If it was traumatic to you, then it was traumatic. You know, and we come back to like, well, what does traumatic mean? And typically what we mean is that it elicited a trauma response. And so a trauma response is a very normative experience. It's what our body was built for. It's that instinctual fight, flight, or freeze response that we see. We also have the fawn or befriend response that people have. That's very, very unique to specific cases. I'll talk about that in another episode where we can dive into what that really looks like. Um, but for now, we're going to focus on the fight, flight, or freeze. So in a normative trauma response, you know, like, for example, say somebody gets into a car accident. This is a very common exposure to a traumatic event. I think almost everybody at some point in their life experiences a car accident. Not many people will suffer traumatizing symptoms um, or traumatic symptoms as a result of that accident. You know, we likely will experience that event. Our body's going to go through a trauma response, the fight, flight, or freeze, and then it resolves over time. This is how our body was built to do this. You know, we are animals that were meant to be able to survive the wild, and that meant surviving multiple possible threats to our lives in order to live day to day. So we have this response system set up that also has a natural resolution to it that enables us to move on. And so the trauma response, the fight, flight, or freeze, right, these are the symptoms um, or these are the responses that our body goes through emotionally, physiologically, and sens sensory motor wise in order to prepare us to be able to neutralize the threat in a way. So the fight response is exactly how it sounds. Our body is getting prepared to fight off whatever the threat is. And the fight response is reserved primarily for when the threat is considered to be too close in physical proximity to be able to successfully run away. And we are physically capable of fighting off that threat. Um, so sometimes this might be, you know, according to like, what size is it? What size are we? Do we have the skills? Our body makes a very, very quick judgment. Can I, am I capable of fighting this thing off? Right. On top of that, we do have to have at least some physical space from uh, whatever the threat is in order to engage in a fight. When the threat is way too close in physical proximity, where fleeing is just not possible, and where fighting is not possible, or we're not skilled enough to be able to fight the, the threat off, or fighting the threat off is going to be potentially more damaging for us, our body's going to activate the instinctual freeze response. This is very, very common in instances of sexual assault because 
the threat is very physically close to the survivor and the threat itself is is something that is happening in a way where fighting off oftentimes could be damaging or life-threatening. The thing to really keep in mind about what happens when these these responses get activated is it is instinctual. The brain actually activates the brain stem region, which is where the fight, flight, or freeze response is housed which is a much more primitive part of our brain. And it, so it remains unchangeable and it's going to activate very automatically. It happens very quickly. And it's also going to happen without you consciously thinking to activate this response. And the reason is, is because your body knows that it can't pause and take time to try to problem solve the best solution when a threat is approaching that you just need to act. And so we end up going into some of those animal instincts and we don't always get to choose what that that response is going to be. So in instances of sexual assault, a lot of survivors, their bodies have ended up choosing the freeze response. Again, because the proximity to the threat was too close, the possibility of being able to even get free with fighting is not really all that possible, wanting to reduce the amount of damage or harm that was occurring in order to allow your body to survive later. And I think what's what's hard is that oftentimes survivors and, and the public who doesn't really understand a lot about these things, we will shame ourselves and blame ourselves for having not fought somebody off or trying to run away or not doing everything that we can to prevent this attack. And and the important thing to remember about this this part of our brain is that it is focused on one thing only, which is to survive, right? So it's going to keep you alive no matter what happens in order for you to get there. And it's going to prioritize that. So your body's not going to think like, I'm going to keep fighting off this, this predator, even if I die trying, your body's going to be like, no, you're not going to die. I'm going to do whatever I can to keep us alive because that's how we were built to do. We've been shaped over you know, thousands upon thousands of years. So our genes are really ready to continue to protect ourselves at this point. And there is a lot of wisdom to this freeze response because the freeze response does prevent any kind of harm happening in a way that enables you to be able to escape the predator or the threat at a later point. You know, when the sexual assault ends, that usually is a time when the survivor is able to somehow survive this event, get away, whatever it might be. And that's the point in which the freeze response breaks. And usually we move into the fight or the flee response. And sometimes that's also where the fawn or befriend response happens, that the brain instinctually lights up understanding that you have to make nice or play play nice in order to be able to get away from the threat. And that's going to happen too. And this can also be very confusing to survivors and People around the survivor that understand this, that hear that, you know, you might have had a conversation with the person or you might have walked away slowly, that you didn't just immediately run and flee. And the reason is, is because our body was doing what it needed to do to survive. Okay, so we have the fight response and the freeze response. And then we have the flight response, right? And that is just running away from the threat. And this is something that. Uh, your body is going to do is if it is possible, it's going to prioritize that one because it has a much higher success rate. You know, you can run away from the threat, you know, and get to safety and the threat, you know, resolves pretty quickly and you can go on about your business. This is the one that is going to prioritize. And this one comes on 10, 
pretty quickly. Like we think about, for example, when you're in your car and you notice that the car in the next lane next to you kind of swerves into your lane, right? You instinctually swerve also. Um, that's that flea response. Your body is making a quick, quick movement to get out of the way. Unfortunately, sometimes that can actually put us in more danger to do that. But that's that's our body, you know, engaging the flea response. So when we think about a trauma response, it is that your body has activated this instinctual response to the trauma exposure. And so that means that it is engaging this system to be able to respond to the perceived threat. So with that said, what that looks like is that we have um, the blood kind of running from the upper cortex into the brainstem of your brain, going into these more instinctual automatic places. You're going to notice that your conscious thought is not necessarily very clear that you're acting from instinct. You might be acting before you know it or before you make decisions about what to do and that there's going to be a lot of blood rushing out to your extremities, to your limbs, you know, to your muscles. You're going to feel a lot of warmth and a rush of adrenaline, which is going to give you a lot of energy and a sense of power. And it's also going to lower your pain and your experience of pain. And the reason is, is because it's possible that you suffer an injury as you're fighting off a predator and you're going to have to keep fighting off that predator and running away from them in order to get to safety. The adrenaline is there to help support you in doing that. And so you're going to feel all of this rush and this power and this energy in your limbs to take action. This sometimes can also lead to things like a feeling of nausea, because if you had eaten anything at that point, like all of the effort and energy and, and blood that was being used to help digest your food is now going rushing out to your extremities. Oftentimes people will vomit when that happens. The other thing to keep in mind is that our senses will become very, very focused or fixated and very constricted in the sense that you might not necessarily be able to scan the whole scene or the environment, you know, or really engage in any kind of peripheral sensory experiences, you're really going to be focused and fixated on specific targets. And that's how to get free, how to get out, you know, what's going on, any sign of possible safety. This is important to be mindful of because when your senses get constricted like that, you're not in a place where you're gathering information to be able to learn about what happened or about who's doing this to you. And that can actually be difficult when you are then reporting something to a police officer, to a social worker, a counselor, to a hospital person, a nurse, a doctor who is asking you for details. And you don't really have anything to say about specific details except maybe certain sensory things like where you were located, what was happening to certain parts of your body, if there was a smell. Those kinds of things might pull your attention in in ways that are not helpful to, you know, the to law enforcement. And so this is something that they have to be particularly mindful of when they're working with survivors. The other thing to keep in mind is with that kind of constriction, it also means that we're not effectively problem solving. We can't problem solve. We shouldn't be problem solving. We're really just focused on getting out of the situation. When we're in a freeze response, this can actually cognitively present like feeling dissociated. And dissociation means that we are not entirely in touch with what our body is experiencing in the present moment. And sometimes we can dissociate completely, which means to be completely out of body at that moment. 
not aware at all as to what's going on, or we can dissociate partially or just in in more of a moderate way where we're somewhat aware but not completely aware. We might dissociate from certain body parts. Uh, we might dissociate from certain moments or even certain emotions in order to survive this. And part of that, that shutdown of the senses is really about shutting down any effort to fight or flee because that's not going to help us in that moment. That's what our mind has decided. And the other is also to help preserve our energy in order to be able to launch our counterattack when it's time to. And there's something that is, to me, that feels very graceful about that, that the brain is set up to try to spare you some of the pain of facing the horror of what's happening until later so that you can preserve a lot of energy to be able to fight back when we're stuck in a horror in a terror space we're not able to fight off we're not able to flee and so your brain is disengaging from experiencing that in order to set you up to be more successful at fighting off the threat later so this is what we consider to be a trauma response is the activation of our survival system. Now, once we have resolved the situation, we've gotten out of the threat and we have fled the situation, we're safe now, that in most cases, we're going to feel kind of a resolution. We're going to feel the symptoms come down. We're going to feel those experiences come, come down and calm down. You're going to feel like some of that adrenaline flow away. You might notice some shaking is going to happen as part of that, or like people call that like shock, like your body's in a certain amount of shock, but that's actually the adrenaline um, coming down. Uh, you're going to start to feel your senses more, and you might actually feel some pain of any injuries that you experienced at the time. And also at the time when that's happening, the rest of our brain is also coming back online. Our upper cortex is starting to work. So our consciousness, our cognitive thinking, as well as our emotional processing is going to activate. And this oftentimes is when we start to feel the fear or the terror or the sadness and, and anger and rage about what happened. And so at that point, we can be in a lot of pain, in a lot of fear, you know, still trying to make sense of things. Uh, but things are starting to calm down. Oftentimes for many people, for many creatures even, we see this in other animals too, we get very tired and our body wants to calm and actually slow down and take a rest and we might fall asleep. And this is a very normal kind of arc, like say you got in a car accident, fight or flight got activated, everything was safe and okay, you handled everything with you know, insurance. If the police had to be called, you were able to leave the scene of the accident you know, you didn't have any injuries, so you go home. And it might be once you're home safe and sound that then things start to calm down and you might start to feel very cold, start to shake a little bit, start to feel some pain around maybe where the seatbelt may contact with your body, start to feel some of that anxiety or that fear and also an intense amount of fatigue. This is the, the resolution. We would also say that it's very common and very normal also that after a traumatic event, some of these symptoms may still linger. For example, if you got in a car accident, you might find it still difficult to drive by the spot where the accident happened. You know, if somebody attacked you um, at school, anxiety might still spike anytime that you walk by that area or you see people that are aware of what happened or witness what happened. Um, and this is all very normal. 
usually over the course of a couple of weeks to a month, these symptoms come down and you're no longer going to be afraid of driving or afraid of going certain places. You're, you're able to move on with your life. It's also possible that some things maybe linger, like if it was a car accident, like maybe you learned something from this and we're like, I'm going to actually drive a little bit safer now. I'm going to take different routes or I'm going to no, I'm going to keep a little bit more space between me and the car in front of me now. That's all very normal. You're learning from your body and your brain are learning from an event that happened to be able to stay safe. What happens in the case of someone having ongoing trauma symptoms or being quote unquote traumatized by an event is when those symptoms around being in trauma right? The trauma response, that fight, flight, or freeze lingers and we get stuck in that response. And being stuck in that response actually then creates changes to the way that the brain operates in the environment. And this is why we call it a psychological injury, that a lot of what happens in the brain is something that is a very automatic response and being kind of stuck in feeling activated to a perceived threat. And when that persists longer than a month, that's when we would say somebody has ongoing trauma. And we're going to talk about the symptoms of PTSD later, and that's that's what we're talking about. But people also can develop other things in response to, to a traumatizing event, things like depression, anxiety, um, ongoing persistent mood disorders. Um, those are all things that can happen as part of a, a a traumatic event and a traumatic experience. Now, when we come back to trying to define trauma and does someone have trauma, there's a couple of definitions that float around that I think can be a little unspecific or problematic. One of the ones that's very common, especially among mental health professionals, is calling something either a big T trauma or a little T trauma. And what I think is problematic about this is ultimately they're meaning big T trauma is like that traumatic incident that I talked about before. And then little T trauma all are these smaller things that are not necessarily traumatic incidents. They're not life-threatening. They're very upsetting. They might have caused some distress that contributed to some shifts in how we perceive ourselves in relationships down the road. The problem with this is that people who have a cluster of those quote-unquote little t traumas or things that have happened in relationships like invalidation, attachment ruptures, really painful upsetting breakups, a betrayal, that kind of thing, they start to believe that they have suffered trauma and they actually start to show signs um, that they are unable to recover from distress and they also have a tendency to seek out treatment that is inappropriate for what they're looking for. And so part of why I think um, expanding this definition of trauma that we've seen happen, particularly on social media, but mental health professionals have unfortunately um, laid some groundwork for that to happen. So we've actually had some studies come out and show that people who define trauma in this expanded way, which is that anything negative that happens to you is traumatic. Or I've heard another definition floating around of like anything that overwhelms your nervous system, which again is not trauma, that's that's considered distress. Anything that overwhelms your nervous system is distress. And it's definitely normal, natural that when trauma happens, we might have distress. But there's also a lot of other things that cause distress 
that are not traumatic and trauma doesn't happen as a result of it or traumatization doesn't happen as a result of of distress but that we see that people who believe that anything that has upset them or overwhelmed them emotionally is trauma that they actually have shown signs that they they launch into crisis much quicker they do not resolve after crisis very quickly are less able to manage episodes of distress they have more frequent episodes of distress and they are more likely to have increased episodes of high distress in response to environmental issues or just things that happen incidents that occur so ultimately what we what we see with people who have this expanded definition and we see this with statistical and clinical significance people with this expanded definition of trauma are less resilient and are more likely to enter into psychological crisis in response to events. This is a problem. Like our efforts to help people have actually led to people having more and more mental health issues simply by us attempting to generalize what trauma is to a bunch of other things. And that people, what this study, and I'm, I'm going to link it in the show notes, has also shown is that people who have this more specific definition of trauma that is in alignment with our diagnostic manual, that's also in alignment with the research and the science that guides psychology, that they actually are much more resilient, that they are able to respond effectively to stressful events, that they recover very quickly, that they are able to develop skills, and that symptoms and experiences of distressing events do not linger for them. And so we see that people who have this more specific definition of trauma actually have more psychological resources as well. So we're already seeing a negative impact on the way that our community has shifted in defining trauma. The other thing that I've seen kind of floating around is, again, this kind of trauma is in the eye of the beholder or everything is trauma or, you know, all of those memes that say something like, if you are really independent, that is trauma. And the problem with this is that we end up pathologizing normal behaviors. And what that means to pathologize something means that we are calling it symptomatic or indicators of a sickness. You know, that this is a problem, this is pathological. And so when we pathologize normal experiences and normal behaviors, we start to communicate to people that things that are not indicators of problems, are actually problematic and people start to avoid engaging in some of these or they take them as indicators that they need a lot of help and it actually increases their distress and they seek help for problems that don't exist. And so this is something that's really important for us to be specific on. The other thing that's important here is that it does passively communicate that unless something is trauma, then it doesn't actually warrant intervention. And that is absolutely not true. And that's part of the argument here that I hear from my fellow mental health professionals, from people online, is that they generalize the definition of trauma to like, it's whatever the client says is trauma, or it's whatever you think is trauma, out of an effort to validate somebody's experiences. And I agree that validation is really, really important. But validating something that is invalid is actually really unhelpful. We find that that increases um, chronic dysregulation of affect. Uh, we notice that that increases difficulty with accurate expression of emotion. 
which is essentially saying that people then either launch into crisis when maybe they're not actually feeling intense distress, or maybe they launch into anger when actually what they're feeling is sadness or fear. That's inaccurate expression. Or maybe sometimes they go the opposite way and they say they're totally fine when they're not fine. And that can happen when we validate the invalid. And also when we validate the invalid, we are also communicating that the valid is is invalid. The truth that somebody's pain that is not trauma is still worth hearing and still worth intervening on and still worth paying attention to and making changes for. We're saying that that's not valid because it's not trauma, right? So it's important that we step away from prioritizing, validating somebody's perception of what they think is trauma and move more towards how to still support them and validate what they're going through while also giving them an accurate sense of what's happening to them. The other is, is I think that a powerful example a friend and colleague gave me is that we often take diagnoses and we turn them into some kind of casual colloquialism. So like people will say things like, oh, I'm so OCD when they're talking about because they like things clean and neat. Or, oh my gosh, I'm so bipolar when they're talking about mood swings. And it's become so common that people will use that interchangeably and understand that. And the problem with that is it actually really, really, really others the people that are experiencing OCD and bipolar disorder. Because it's saying that their symptoms of actual OCD and bipolar disorder are so far out of the norm that being neat and clean is just what we're talking about. When somebody with OCD is having intense, painful experiences that actually require very significant intervention and support and warrant getting significant intervention and support. Being clean and neat in your house is not OCD. That's not actual suffering in the way that somebody with OCD has suffering. Same with bipolar disorder is not just mood swings. And we also don't want to go the other way and over pathologize OCD, bipolar disorder, or any other mental illness and say that this is so severe what people are experiencing that they are, you know, incompetent, unfit, or unstable. Uh, Because actually many of these are very, very treatable when they get the right services, right? When they get the right connection, they're very treatable, they're manageable. And people with bipolar disorder, people with OCD, people with borderline personality disorder, people with depression, people with trauma actually can lead very functional and fulfilling and satisfying lives and independent lives and are actually worthy of having wonderful relationships and friendships and partnerships with people. So it is actually really important that we're specific. I think I liken it to like, we don't go to the doctor and have them beat around the bush telling us whether or not we have cancer. And they're just like, well, there's maybe kind of this growth of cells happening that's, you know, not really supposed to, they say it's cancer. They're very specific with us. They don't call a stroke a heart attack of the brain. A heart attack is a heart attack. A stroke is a stroke. Both are very serious and both have specific treatments for them. The same is true for trauma and distress and upset and invalidation and ruptures. These are all things that are very significant and they are important. Your pain is real and your pain warrants being heard. And you also get to get support around your pain. It doesn't have to be trauma in order for it to deserve the attention that you're wanting it to get. 
And by attention, I mean like getting help, getting support, getting services. And so I think that's really important that if we were actually much more effective at actually validating people's pain, then we wouldn't actually see this generalization of trauma to the degree where we're actually not helping people, where we're creating more harm. And so to specify a little bit more, for example, little t traumas that people are referencing are things like attachment ruptures. And this is where something happens in the relationship with our primary caregivers growing up that where we feel like the caregiver may have violated their role in some way, like maybe they didn't keep us safe, they didn't care for us effectively, they weren't emotionally attuned to us the way that we needed them to be. And so this is like experiencing invalidation or having your needs go unmet, having emotionally unavailable caregivers, that kind of thing is is an attachment rupture. This is not going to activate the trauma response system because it's not a survival issue in that way. And it's not going to cause a psychological injury that we see happen with trauma. However, these kinds of things can, especially when they occur in a chronic sense where it's repeated over and over and over, can actually shape the way that we think about ourselves, perceive ourselves, and perceive other relationships and engage in them. This is actually all comes from our research around attachment, attachment styles, how those get set up, parenting, and how to also repair attachment styles. And repairing attachment styles might not actually involve any kind of trauma intervention. If trauma happens in that caregiving relationship where, say, something life-threatening or physical harm or sexual violence occurs in an attachment relationship that is, yes, trauma, and you would probably engage in a trauma intervention to resolve that. But when it's kind of isolated to some of those misattunements, invalidation, emotional unavailability or emotional intrusion, boundary crossings, that kind of thing, we're, we're talking about a completely different intervention. Now, with all that said, that doesn't mean that attachment ruptures or chronic even attachment ruptures are somehow less important. They are just as important. They might be more important to somebody, right? There, there are many clients I see that they've suffered and experienced, you know, very textbook trauma in their lives. But the thing that they're really struggling with is stuff that happened in their childhood with their caregivers that was not traumatic. But we wouldn't then engage in a trauma intervention for them around that. We might engage some sort of other intervention to help with that, especially around building skills around how to engage more effectively in their current relationships um, to engage more attachment repair um, and build healthy attachment relationships currently. So it's really important that we're much more specific in how we're addressing this. And like I said, the, the, you know, it's anything that overwhelms your nervous system. We're talking about distress. And the reason why that's also something that's important to identify is that when there's chronic episodes of distress, that doesn't typically lead to trauma symptoms necessarily. It leads to actually chronic dysregulation of emotions. And that's similar to something we see with like borderline personality disorder, uh, where people have this feeling that their emotions are controlling their lives, where no matter what they try to do, they get overwhelmed by their emotions easily. People who have trauma symptoms will actually experience things like intense dissociative episodes, you know, those survival instincts coming online when it's not appropriate, things like avoidance, all of that kind of stuff. That's, it's a very different representation. 
we actually will typically see with trauma a lot of emotional shutdown and a restriction of emotional range when we see with chronic distress almost this expansion of emotional range. So again, it's very important to be specific because we also want people to get the support that they need. And we also really want to validate everybody's experiences. And this is this is really important as a community as a whole that we're continuing to broaden the access to mental health care by allowing space for everybody's pain and experiences to be treatable, not just trauma. I think, you know, a word for other mental health professionals, you know, as well that are expanding the definition of trauma. I think, you know, it's really important as part of really preserving our clinical work to be as effective as possible and to truly show up as allies and advocates for all of our clients and the population as a whole experiencing mental health issues and needs that we are very specific with what we are seeing you know, again, because we are healthcare professionals. And so we should be a science-based practice rather than an ideological one. And I think that sometimes what we can see as some of the drift that's happening with mental health professionals is drifting into ideology-based practice, which is kind of like, this is what I believe. This is my opinion. You know, this is my experience one on one that is not necessarily based in the research or the science of psychology and the science of healthcare that we come to trust to actually provide decent healthcare interventions, ones that are actually going to help us and help remediate mental health issues. But that when we expand this definition of trauma, it really does diminish the integrity of a very important clinical word. And that's what we've seen is that in our efforts to validate everybody's suffering, not only have we actually served to not actually validate people's suffering and to lead a lot of people down the wrong path to getting support, we actually have diminished this the meaning and the integrity of this word that people no longer respond to it the way that we need them to, in the sense that, you know, we do want people to pay attention to mental health issues and mental health care and accessibility to mental health care. But when we overuse diagnoses to mean normative experiences, like being upset, having an argument with someone going through a tough breakup, these are not necessarily traumatic experiences. And that can cause the general population and the decision makers and our leaders to start to diminish their response to trauma Um, By saying that, like, maybe this is just a part of life and that's not necessarily true. And again, that doesn't mean that you can't get help for going through a really tough breakup. That's an attachment rupture. We actually can get really good help around that. And that is important to honor. So it is important that through validating people is actually by being accurate and specific with what what's going on. And that sometimes does mean challenging ourselves to correct others when we hear them misusing these terms and doing so in a very compassionate way by telling somebody, actually, I don't know, I don't think that was trauma. I think that might have been something else. We can still validate their suffering and their pain and also show up for them and offer them an intervention that might actually really help for them and and really help them get back into the life they want to live. So for many survivors, we do see that survivors, especially around sexual assault, sexual violence, sexual abuse, do engage in 
this trauma response in, in, in the face of this trauma exposure, you know, that we typically see the freeze response happen. We can see that the freeze and the flee response often stay activated for many survivors. There's a high rate of PTSD among survivors of sexual assault. We'll go into all of that in the next episode. The other thing to really consider too, as a final point, is that as a community really wanting to show up as allies for survivors is to also be specific with the terms that we're using as well, because many of the times what I'm hearing from survivors, what I'm seeing in the comments on posts about this is many survivors are actually feeling grossly invalidated and overlooked again and again by the way that trauma has been expanded and is losing its meaning now at this point. It does feel again that survivors are getting shuffled out as that their experiences are commonplace or don't matter or just something that we need to start expecting of the world because everybody experiences trauma. And that is very, very frightening and very saddening for all of us survivors to see that once again, there's another mechanism happening to not hear us, to shut down access to our stories and to also kind of take them back from us. And we're really trying to work to reclaim those. So if you want to be in support of survivors, whether because you are a survivor or you are an ally of survivors, really start to challenge this expansion of this word and get much more specific about the things that that you are describing, you are experiencing, you are witnessing, and challenge others to also be more specific with their definition as well. Thank you so much for sitting through all of this. Like I said, I'm going to talk about PTSD next and how that affects survivors, and I will see you all very soon. I am a clinical psychologist and love to share these skills and tips to build resilience and recovery. However, this podcast is not a replacement for psychotherapy or mental health care. We have links in our show notes where you can connect with a provider or you can get a referral from your primary doctor if you wish to receive those services. If you are struggling today or wish to speak to someone, know that RAIN is always available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to offer support, guidance, and referrals for help. You can speak to someone right now at RAIN at the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. The Initiated Survivor is a podcast written and hosted by me, Kelsey Harper. It is produced and edited and all-around awesome podcast magic is casted by Sam Valentine. The beautiful music you heard is written and performed by Michael Carpenter Jr. If you wish, please leave us a sweet review so other survivors can find this podcast and get connected as well.